us today, whether you're with us online or with us here in the house today, glad you're here to worship Jesus with us. If you want to grab your Bible, Micah chapter 6 is where we'll be today, Micah chapter 6, or go there on your phone or device or whatever you got, Micah verse, Micah 6 verses 6 to 8 is where we'll be, and as you turn there, I just want to introduce myself. If you're new around here at Strong Tower, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad uh, to have you as our guest, and we would love, as John was saying, for you to let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can be a blessing in your life through that Connect card. It's a way for us to um, just get to know you and, and find out if um, you know there's groups that you would want to be a part of or classes or just answer questions you might have and ways we can pray for you. So make sure you do that before you head out today. Micah chapter 6, if you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading of God's word at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, humility, mercy, and justice. Humility, mercy, and justice. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, uh, we come to you this morning once again asking that you would use your word in our life. Your word says that it does not return void, and so we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit in your word to change us, to make us more like you, to make us people of mercy, humility, and justice. God, make us people who reflect you to the watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Library of Congress was established actually when the capital of our nation was moved to Washington, D.C. And the Library of Congress was kind of moving around for the beginning of its, its, its existence for the first century, actually. It didn't have a permanent home. It kind of moved from building to building and eventually settled after a century in its permanent residence that it's now in, which is beautifully ornate. Right? If you've ever seen pictures of the Library of Congress or maybe you've had the chance to visit, uh, it's decorated in, in paintings and sculptures and there's gold everywhere, there's marble and stone and it's, it's quite the attraction. It's, it's beauty and, and kind of uh, over-the-top excellence and actually if you go there, you, you can take the elevators to the third floor or you can walk up these beautiful marble stairs and you can go to what they call the main reading room. And in the main reading room, it's probably the most famous of all the rooms there. You've seen pictures probably where you, you have this circular room and it's surrounded by eight different pillars in the room. And on each of those pillars, they designed it to where each pillar represents the eight pillars of knowledge is what they called it. And those eight pillars of knowledge, one of those pillars was what they deemed religion. Religion. And so in 1897, when they were finishing up the... the 
building of this place, they started to, to name the pillars with these different things, and they wanted to have an inscription on each of the pillars, representing that pillar of knowledge. And in 1897, Charles Eliot, who was at the time the president of Harvard University, he was given the task to find the inscription for the pillar of religion. And so he, the story goes, was asking multiple religious leaders across the nation uh, what they would say, you know, give me a scripture from the Bible. What, what do you think the scripture should be that represents the pillar of religion? And, and you can imagine if you've read the Bible, it's, it's a big book. In fact, it's 66 books in one. There's over a thousand chapters in the Bible. Over 30,000 verses to choose from. And they chose one verse. And it was Micah 6.8. Out of all the verses you could choose in the whole Bible, they choose this little known prophet from Jerusalem. Literally a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Micah 6.8. It's inscribed, it's engraved into the stone of our American culture. This verse that says justice, mercy, and humility. And it was said that they chose it because this was the summary, the summary, the most famous summary of what they called practical religion. In other words, this is what it looks like to live out Christianity, Micah 6.8. Now the question is, are we actually living it? I mean, it's inscribed, it's engraved in in the Library of Congress as the pillar of religion in our culture, but are we living it? I think anyone would would argue that that the, the culture today craves a Christianity that lives those three things, justice, mercy, and humility. No matter what your political leaning is, what your party might be, what your status in society is, I think everybody in our society would agree that, that there's this longing, this craving it, that resonates deep within our hearts for those three things. Because that, that's, that's our human nature that we, we know. There's, there's something that shows that is authentic. In fact, in Jesus' day, there was a similar setting where Uh, If you know the the New Testament setting, the Roman Empire had taken over Israel. They were ruling and reigning over this little tiny nation. But for some reason, they decided to let Israel still have their religious activities. And so the priests were allowed to continue offering sacrifices. The scribes were still teaching the law of Moses. The Pharisees were still leading the services in the synagogue. There was a lot of religious activity still going on in Israel, but there wasn't much authenticity. And when Jesus confronts the religious leaders of his day who were still keeping up all the activity, this is what he says in Matthew 23. He says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And listen to this, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There it is again in Matthew 23, not in the Library of Congress, but on the lips of our Savior. This Micah 6-8 religion. Justice, mercy, and humility. And so we're finishing up our series today called Renew the Vision. And we've been talking about kind of Strong Tower 101. What does it mean to be a part of Strong Tower? And we looked at our our new mission statement, which is uh, we make healthy disciples of Jesus who cultivate thriving communities. We looked at how that means we have personal transformation and we have community transformation. We want to see both. 
We want to see healthy disciples, and we want to see thriving communities. And so then we ask, well, how are we going to do that, or why? Well, what, what motivates us to do those things? And so we have five motives, and we looked at the first two last week that are gospel and family. And we talked about how uh, those two things really give us our identity, right? It, it, that, that what we do comes out of who we are. In Christ, this is who we are. We are gospel people, and we are God's family. That's what it means to, to be in Christ. But then, if, if you want to look at the next three, which is what we're going to do this week, I want to ask how. So if, lastly, if, if last week was, was the who, right? This is who we are. How are we going to live out who we are? Micah 6, 8 is the peak. Jesus quotes Micah 6, 8 in his own summary of what it means to live an authentic Christianity. And so I want to look at that this morning. And first, in order to look at that, we've got we to gotta kind of back up and, and look at these two categories of religion and righteousness. So if you're taking notes, uh, start with me in verse, or, or the first point, religion and righteousness. Begin with me in verse 6. Verse 6, uh, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, for the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Now, Micah is, is uh, a prophet in the Old Testament who's prophesying during a time of great prosperity. Israel was going through an economic boom. Business is flourishing. The country is, is looking back on their history and thinking things have never been this good, maybe back in Solomon's day. But, but this is like, you know, our, our nation is, is cruising. We're doing well. Things are, are up. And so you would think, right, that that means God is pleased with you. But I mean, how many of y'all know that just because you're financially flourishing doesn't mean you have the favor of God? In fact, God had made this covenant with His people. He said, part of my covenant relationship with you is that you would be my witnesses to the whole world, that the nations would look at Israel and they would see a people that represents me. They would see a people that, that represents my heart and my action and my life. And so what happened was money came in, times were good, businesses were doing well, and they forgot about God. And the wealthy, the wealthy started not caring for the poor. They started oppressing the poor. The landowners started taking back the land from the poor and the community and causing a crisis of homelessness in Israel. Micah starts to call them out for this. He, he's naming all these things. If you go through the first five chapters of Micah, he's, he's describing this scenario where Israel, or at least some of Israel, is flourishing. And then there's this hidden bottom. And then God calls, and what we're reading right now in chapter 6 is, is in the form of a covenant lawsuit. I mean, God is calling them to court. Imagine a courtroom scene. God calls his people to court, and he says, all right, I'm bringing charges against you, and here they are. And he, he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to call witnesses to the stand, and I'm going to call the mountains. I love the poetry in this chapter. I want to call the mountains to witness and they're, they're going to tell everybody what they've seen because the mountains have been here the whole time. And then I'm going to call the, the foundation of the earth to witness and, and they're going to tell everybody what's happening because 
They've been here the whole time. And he starts to name one after one, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. And then he says to Israel, but don't you forget what I've done for you. And he starts to recount their history and how he's delivered them time after time after time. So God is bringing all this evidence to the stand in this covenant lawsuit. And then now they're given the opportunity to respond. And what they respond with is fascinating because it gives insight into our hearts. They, they start to bargain with God. They, they start to ask, what, what can I do to appease God? What, what can I do to, to make Him happy and get Him off my back because I want to go back to the good times because we're doing well right now. And He starts to offer all kinds of things. First, He offers the best. He says, what if I offer a burnt offering? Because the burnt offering is the most expensive. The burnt offering is the one that costs you everything because it's literally consumed in the fire. Okay, if you don't want the best, then then what if I offer the most? What if I offer thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? I mean, he's just going all overboard. Okay, you, you don't want the best, you don't want the most. What if I offer the ridiculous God? What if I offer my firstborn child? I mean, this this worshiper who's representing Israel in this lawsuit case, he's he's trying to appease God. But but notice, he's coming at it with all these rituals, but there's no sense of righteousness. In other words, what, what he's saying is, I just want to find what will make you happy so I can go back to my life. I don't want you to change my life. I don't want you to transform my heart. I just want to get away from you. And this kind of religion, listen, this kind of religion without righteousness, it's repulsive to God. It's repulsive. And we all do it. I mean, I do it. We we all do it. It's it's this sense of bargaining where you, you ever been caught in a sin? And, and the first reaction you have is, oh my gosh, what can I do to make up for it? What can I, I mean, it, it may be a sin against somebody else that you've done. It may be a sin against God that you're caught in. It, something in your life where you are exposed for what's really happening, because it doesn't look like that on the outside, but then someone sees what's going on. And the first thing you do is, oh God, what can I do to make up for it? Do I need to go to church more? Or in, in COVID's case, do I need to watch more YouTube? I don't know, whatever. But do, do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to give more? Do, do I need to give the best that I've got? Do I need to give the ridiculous? What, what do I need to do, God, so I can make up for my problems? And you start bargaining with God because you have this religion where the expectation is, I'm going to build my righteousness. It's the age-old human problem of if I mess up, it's up to me to make it up. It's up to me to then build something that God would be proud of that I can then present to Him so I can get free. You see that? It's it's this core religion that that the people of Israel are coming to to God and, and, and they just want to look really religious, but they don't want to look nothing like righteousness. They want this false religion that's repulsive to God. And, and Jesus actually later on declares to the, to the Pharisees, he, who, you know, they're the experts, kind of the stereotype of this kind of religious ritual relationship with God. He says this, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
And then he follows it up with this next line. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You catch that? He's talking to these very righteous religious leaders saying, you think that it's all about sacrifice. And I'm saying it's all about your sin. He's saying to the religious leaders, you think that that you should be concerned about what I can do to make up for what I've done wrong. And he says, no, 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 you're in the wrong category. We're we're talking about sin that you can't deal with. You have to receive righteousness, right? In order for righteousness to happen in your life, you can't build it, you can't earn it, you can't do enough. You have to receive a righteousness from God that you can't build. It has to come from Him. This is what the whole book of Romans is about. We don't have time to get into that. but, But he's saying this. He's saying the point of the sacrificial system is not for you to get saved, it's to point you to the Savior. Did you know that? The whole Old Testament where you see sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, none of that saved anybody. In fact, it says it in Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews 10, 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because you need God to take away your sins. You need God to sacrifice Himself. There's only been one sufficient sacrifice in all human history. It was when Jesus gave himself, when Jesus gave his own blood, when Jesus gave his own life, when Jesus was the the ram for us. That's, That's the only way righteousness happens is if our unrighteousness is put on him so that we can receive his righteousness. You catch it? And so Jesus is saying, All of this is pointing to me. And here's the miracle of the gospel. This is why we have to say this at the beginning of this sermon. The miracle of the gospel is we live from God's love, not for it. We live from a place of righteousness that's been received and is secure because of Jesus' work for us. We don't live for it. We live from it. And so if we receive a righteousness, there's nothing we can do to appease God, to make Him happy with us, other than receive Jesus. So as we we talk about this, this, this idea of how do we live an authentic Christian life, it has to start from the place that what I'm about to do has nothing to do with whether God approves of me. But it has everything to do with the righteousness I've received now becoming real in my life. You catch that? That in order to have a righteous life, you have to receive righteousness that then is lived out in your life because it's in you already. It's, it's, it's in you already because of what Jesus has done. And so that's the question in the text is what does real righteousness look like in us? Well, here Micah says it's about mercy and justice. It's about mercy and justice. That's the second point, mercy and justice. Look at verse 8. He says this. This is uh, Micah speaking for God. He has told you, O man. That's the, the person on trial here. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, also translated mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the the real righteousness that's lived out of a received righteousness. You catch that? 
You receive the righteousness of Christ, and then it becomes real in your life. And Micah says two things. Do justice, love mercy. Now, do justice, what in the world? I mean, if you talk about a trigger word in our culture today, what does he mean by justice? There's two uh, Hebrew words that, that are translated justice and are often interchanged in the Old Testament, mishpat and zedekah, right? Mishpat and zedekah. Mishpat is... Uh, 200 and plus times in the Old Testament, it, it really means this sense of treating people equitably. And so in the Old Testament, any society was judged by its mishpat, by, by how equitably it treated its people, particularly those who were most vulnerable in the society. So that was what, what justice meant on that side, that, that everybody is being treated equitably and fair in a society. But then on the other word, Zedekah, Zedekah also appears very often, and it, it is this idea of a life of right relationships, right? So together, you have them over three dozen times. And, and one of the Old Testament scholars, Bruce Walkie, he says that the two terms together give a holistic picture of a system of right rules and right relationships. You see that? That there's these right rules and there's right relationships. It's a system designed for the flourishing of all humanity. That, that's what it means in the Bible when you talk about justice. But then he says, uh, we're also called to love mercy. Now, the Hebrew is literally love, love. It's two different words for love. And the second word for love here is, is this famous word, hesed, which is uh, often used of God's love. It's this covenantal love, this idea that it's one-way love, that, that you love in one direction. You love with what one person says, no exit strategy. It's just, I'm all in, I will love and love and love, and I will empty myself and give myself until there's nothing left. Hesed love. So here you have these two things. You have justice, which is right rules and right relationships, and then you have hesed love. And God says these two things work together. For love. Mercy and justice are the two sides of love. That's why he calls us to this, right? What Jesus would say is, love your neighbor. But Micah tells you how. It's mercy and justice. And, and here's how uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he, uh, he confronted Hitler's injustice, and uh, he, he was in, instrumental in, in, in uh, bringing down the Nazi regime. And, and he says in his, his classic book, Life Together, he, he has this quote talking about engaging people in love. And, and this is what he says. He says, people are looking for an ear that will listen. They don't find it among Christians very often because Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing in the presence of God. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life, and in the end there is nothing left but spiritual chatter. I mean, what he's saying is you can't do the work of love, whether it's justice or mercy or any other kind of love, you can't do the work of love unless you listen. And in particular, in Micah's case, in the context of Micah, it's listening to those who are marginalized and powerless. Right? What Micah's saying to Israel is he's saying, you have forgotten that God's ear is towards the marginalized. You've forgotten that he hears the cry of, of the hidden homeless children right here in Polk County. 
He, he says, you've forgotten that he hears the cries of the vulnerable who fear for their life during this pandemic. He hears the cries of the unborn in the womb of their terrified mothers. He hears the cries of black and brown people who struggle for their own safety every day. As it tells us in Exodus, God hears and God knows. He hears and he knows. Question is, do we hear? Do we know? Do the marginalized and oppressed in our communities, do they have the ear of the church? Are we listening? Because we'll never be able to love if we can't listen. We'll never be able to engage people in mercy or justice if we can't listen. Right? And some cries, as, as we begin to listen to the community, some cries get to be met by mercy and some are met by justice. The two work together. They, they're the two sides of love. And so mercy seeks to meet the need. Justice seeks to eliminate the need. Mercy looks at the need and, and, and says, I'm going to find ways to help individuals who are in need, which may be a multitude of things, right? Mercy may be that, that you start a job training program where you help people get the job skills that they need so that they can move into a, a job that can help them meet their, their bills or, or whatever's going on in their life. Mercy may mean that you gather together a group of people and, and you start a, a car ride, carpool kind of thing where you get people to work on time and, and you help people as they have needs arise with, with car trouble. Mercy may mean that, that you show up at a single mom's house and you bless her with groceries and gift cards and help her out during a tough time. Right? There's so many different things you could do with mercy, but it's saying I'm going to give of myself for this individual who's in need. But justice is different. Justice asks the question, why do we keep experiencing the same thing? Why are so many people struggling with this same reality that comes up over and over and over and over again? Well, justice is asking the question, how do we fix it? How, how do we look at the system of this community that, that needs something different, that will produce an, an environment that is more conducive to flourishing for all people? So justice starts to look at, remember, it's right relationship and it's right rules. If on the right rules side, you're, you're trying to figure out how, how do we have policies and, and systems that help people who are ignored or marginalized. On the right relationship side, you're, you're figuring out where are there broken relationships and people are not being seen that we can bring into the community. Right? It's right rules, right relationships that bring flourishing. And these things work together. I wish we had time. Like I said, this is, this is an overview of these three motives. But, but justice and mercy are not opposed to one another. They're essential for one another. They're essential for the work of love. But as we engage in loving our community through mercy and justice, there's this third motive that has to be at the foundation or it, it all falls apart. And it's humility. It's humility. And so this is the third uh, point here, humility. Look at verse 8 as he continues uh, with this statement, this summary statement. He says, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? He, he says, do justice, love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. And he uses, and I believe this is very intentional, he, he uses three different verbs here. Do, love, and walk. Right? If you get those mixed up, you, you might get in trouble because if you try to uh, love justice, 
but you don't ever do justice, you're not doing what God has called you to do. Because it's so much easier to love justice and not do it and rather talk about it. Same thing with mercy, right? If you try to do mercy, but you don't love mercy, you'll end up bitter and hurt and broken because you're just doing it out of duty, out of duty, out of duty. And then on this third one, on humility, if you, if you just desire humility, but you never walk in humility, he's saying you're, you're missing the opportunity to literally walk with God. I mean, I, lo- I love what he, he says uh, in this text because he, he uses this, these two words, walk humbly. And, and, the, and the word humbly is, is actually the word that it can be translated walk carefully or walk, my favorite, close to the ground. I love that, as if there was any other way to walk. But walk close to the ground. It's this idea of like you're almost crawling. You're, you're down in this low position close to the ground. We read this past week in, in our community Bible reading. Uh, I don't know if you guys have joined in yet on that, but community Bible reading is, is a, a Bible reading plan we do at Strong Tower. There's journals in the back if you want to get one, or there's an app. But Luke 14, we were reading. In Luke 14, Jesus is uh, he's invited over to someone's house for a party. It's like a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. All these religious leaders are invited over. And Jesus shows up, and he's like the guest of honor as a rabbi. And he shows up to this house, and it's full of all these important people, and everybody's fighting for different seats, and, and he could just tell it's, it's tension. And, and really, they're there, be, or he's there because they want to catch him. They invited him not because they like him. They invited him because they thought he was going to do something wrong, and then they'd have proof in front of all these people, Right? So Jesus comes over to this party. He knows all this. And he just kind of stirs the pot a little bit. He sees a guy who's in need, who's disabled. And, and he, he looks at the man and he asks them this question about what's legal on the Sabbath. And then he heals the man. Right in front of everybody, knowing that the religious leaders had this local law that you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath. So now everybody's fighting again. They're not just fighting for their seats. They're fighting because Jesus did this on the Sabbath at our house, ruining the party. All, I mean, everybody's angry. And then Jesus, as he's watching all this happen at the dinner party, he puts his finger right on why no one else cared about this man. And he stands up and he begins to tell a story, just, just a little small parable in the middle of dinner. And he says, imagine you're going to a wedding feast. And you go to the wedding feast and everybody's fighting for the best seat. He said, don't worry. Don't worry at all about the best seat. Take the lowest seat. Take the seat that no one else wants. Because in their culture, in the shame honor culture, every opportunity was an opportunity for you to elevate yourself to be honored. And then every opportunity was also an opportunity to shame other people so you can put them below you. He says, don't play that game. Don't, don't try to honor yourself. Lower yourself to the lowest possible seat. And what he's describing is the direction of humility. Humility goes downward. And what he's putting his finger on, listen to me carefully, what he's putting his finger on is the reason these people couldn't love the man who was in need right in front of them is because they couldn't even see him. They couldn't even see him because they weren't at the lowest level where he was 
they were all caught up in their upward mobility to the highest level. He was nowhere on their radar because they were up here and he's down here. And he says, if you want to love, you got to move downward. Humility loves from the low place. It loves from the low place. Robertson McQuilkin was a uh, president of Columbia Bible College when his uh, wife was diagnosed with severe Alzheimer's. And uh, when he got the news, obviously it, it was devastating and uh, it was going to change their life forever. And he decided that he was going to quit his job. He was a well-known uh, Christian leader at the time and he decides he's going to resign from his position and go full-time caring for his wife in her Alzheimer's condition. And as she was uh, continuing to deteriorate in her, her health, he's there at her side helping her. He's loving her and serving her and washing her and feeding her and wiping her and everything for her. He's taking care of his wife. Here's this man who was at the peak of his career. He gave it all up to care for his wife. And at first, the people who were in his circles, they're, they're you know, kind of saying things like, oh, isn't that sweet of him? And then after a couple years, uh, when is this going to stop? When are you going to go back to work? When, when are you going to you know, let her be somewhere else and let someone else take care of that? And then one guy came to him and he, he just flat out asked him, are you tired? He said, what, what do you mean tired? I'm, I'm tired, I go to bed every night, like, like you. I don't know what you're talking about. He says, no, are, are you tired? And he tilts his head over at his wife. She's sitting in the wheelchair with this vacant look in her eyes. Are you, are you tired of her? And Robertson said, Absolutely not. I, I'm not tired. I, I love to love her. She is precious to me. I mean, that, listen to that. that. That is the heart of humility. Humility at the low place, loving out of the low place where you give yourself away. Like that, that's literally what it means to love, is, is to love, is to love from the low place loses itself. And we see it all over the life of Jesus. Jesus from the low place, loving us. Philippians 2, it says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying there, he's saying that Jesus was seeking the low place, going from heaven to earth all the way to hell, because that's where we were. Jesus goes to the low place because that's where we are. The only way he could love us is to go from the heights down to the depths. The only way he could love us is to go from up here down there where we are in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt, in our failure, in our brokenness. He says, I'll go to the bottom to love you. I'll go where no one else will go, and I'll choose to go there, because that's where you are. And I'll go all the way to the cross, the lowest of the lows, where we see the miracle of the gospel. Jesus is fulfilling the perfect justice of God for our sin. He's punishing the wrongs and righting the relationships. He's taking upon himself the evils of the whole world, redeeming the world with every wrong made right, with every sin made forgiven, mercy then flows from the Father. Mercy. And it's at the cross alone that justice and mercy kiss. The two inseparable sides of love have their greatest expression in the divine love of Jesus for you and for me. 
But he could only do it because he emptied himself. Only because he emptied himself. Only because he went low. Only because he lost himself for love's sake. Lost himself. And so we can do justice and we can love mercy only because we empty ourselves. That's the only way it happens. It's the only way we can do it in love as if we empty ourselves, if we walk, as, as Micah says, close to the ground with God, with Him. If we know that neither justice nor mercy are ours without Jesus' work for us. Right? It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You catch that? What it's saying is that humility is not about hating yourself, it's about denying yourself. It's about saying that God is greater than me, and so I'm going to lower myself for whoever I'm called to love, knowing that He will lift me up. See, the good news that we have in the gospel is that if we empty ourselves, God says, I'll fill you. If we lower ourselves, you know what he says in Luke 14? He says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. In, in Philippians chapter 2, where, where we see Jesus on this downward trajectory, it's not forever. It says right after that that God exalted Jesus to the highest of highs, the name above all names, because he lowered himself, trusting God in faith. That if I love, God will fill me. If I die... God will resurrect me. You see that? That, that? That's the pattern of love. And so in order to do what God has called us to do, to live out justice and mercy for our community, you have to first die. And then live in Jesus. And live in Him. And the best part of being in the low place is God is there. He beat you to it. He's already there waiting, inviting you in saying, come, love with me. Be loved by me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the low place. Thank you that it teaches us um, what it means to, to really love. To love in a hesed way, where, where we give until we have nothing left, and then you fill us again. Thank you that it teaches us how to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others so that we can seek justice. Thank you, Lord, that it teaches us that you went before us so that you could be in us. And we ask, God, that you would uh, fill us again today as we empty ourselves, whether it's loving in our homes, in our schools, in our jobs, or our church, whatever it may be, wherever you call us to love our neighbor, Lord, may you fill us with your grace for it. May you flesh out of us the, the righteousness which you've declared over us as we put our faith in Jesus. May it become real in us. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name.